Hey everyone, I'm Corrine Levy and this is Scrib Chat, the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. From branding to resume building and beyond, design touches almost every aspect of our lives. In this Scrib Chat, editor-in-chief of The Great Discontent, Tina Smaker sat down with podcast host and author Debbie Millman to chat about design and creativity and how to get to where you want to be in your career. You can read several of Debbie's books, including Brand Thinking and Other Noble Pursuits and How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer on Scribd for free with your subscription. And if you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And with that, here's Debbie Millman in discussion with Tina Esmicker at WeWork South Williamsburg in New York. Enjoy. Good evening. Thank you guys for braving the weather. Really? It's wild out there. I had this horrifying nightmare that nobody was going to come out. So thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> All right. So we've got a lot to cover tonight. I guess so. I was telling Tina that I cannot ever remember. I could be wrong, but I don't think... I've ever actually been interviewed in front of a live audience before, ever. I've done a lot of interviewing, but I've never actually been the one being interviewed. So it's very odd and somewhat disconcerting. (laughs) Ditto. (laughs) It's disconcerting uh, for me to interview the interviewer. Okay, we'll go easy on each other. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) Okay, so I want to start at the beginning of your story. You were born in Brooklyn, and you spent time in multiple boroughs before making your home in Manhattan for the last 30-something years. So in the introduction of your book, Brand Thinking and Other Noble Pursuits, you wrote about one of your first brand experiences. And so I'm going to read this excerpt from the book of what you said. Are you ready? I I am, as ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) Okay. My entire life has been shaped by brands. I became aware of their transformative power when I was a little girl and first discovered packages of goodie barrettes hanging on the dazzling display case in my father's pharmacy. I'd oogle these colorful accessories and imagine that the act of donning them would remake me into a prettier girl, though I had no real reason to believe this. Nevertheless, I was bewitched by the abundant array of hair accoutrements until my teens, at which point my yearning transferred to what I considered cool brands, Levi's jeans, Reebok sneakers, and Lacoste polo shirts. I think we've circled back around to the cool brands. <laughs> so, so I want to start there. Even though brands were part of your life from a young age, as they are part of all of our lives, you weren't thinking about going into designer branding as a little girl, right? No, I, so I didn't what, even know that those disciplines existed. Right. Yeah. So what did you want to be when you grew up? I think I wanted to be, I mean, I'm, I'm, trying to recreate those memories because at the time when I was really little, I didn't know what the future could be. I didn't, wasn't thinking about what I could be, but I think if I had to pick anything, it maybe would have been something in musical theater because I love to sing. And I loved at the time I used to, I had, when I was growing up, I had one brother and two stepsisters and I make them do little plays and I'd give them the scripts and we'd do the decorations. So I think if I had to choose one thing at that time, it probably would have been maybe a musical theater director or performer, but I don't sing well, so probably a director. <laughs> I also don't take direction well, so definitely a director. <laughs> 
so you would be in charge. Yes. So so later on, so you did discover design and branding later on, yes. but you went to uh, SUNY State Albany. State University of New York in Albany. Um, to study journalism. No. No? No. I studied English literature and I studied Russian literature. So I've often joked that I have a degree, a college degree in reading because that was all I did really was read. I did not have any sense of any marketable skill I might be able to call. I had no interest in doing anything financial or anything in business. I hoped that I would be some, I, I was hoping that I could do something with journalism. But then when I graduated, I actually applied to the Columbia School of Journalism and was rejected. So I, I didn't ever pursue that more formally. But you did take a class in design, right? Were you working on the class paper? In design. I took one class in design, mostly because I was considering, rather than having a minor in Russian literature, I was actually considering having a minor in art or art history. And so I was taking credits in art that would apply to a minor, and one of those happened to be introduction to design. My only memory of which was designing a logo for a restaurant that I very sophomorically named Walnuts and Cherries. <laughs> it was for a health food store. And then I remember drawing this sort of little bunch of cherries. Now, one of the first rules in design is you either say it or draw it, but you don't say it and draw it. So, you know, having a, lo a logo called Walnuts and Cherries with the cherries was, you know, so... Yeah, wouldn't have worked. So you discovered design. I discovered design really when I was in in my senior year of college. I had wanted to work on my student newspaper and was also rejected the first time I tried to offer my services when I was a freshman and then ended up going back up to the newsroom my second semester junior year and once again offered volunteered to to work on the student newspaper at that point they actually needed somebody at that moment to go out and cover a student uprising outside the health food store and so i went and covered that and then i ended up writing for the paper and then by the end of that semester i was appointed the arts and features editor of that section sort of like the arts and leisure section of the new york times but what i found out well first of all i was only appointed because no one else wanted the job so it wasn't like this really big achievement. It was like, who wants to do this? Crickets. I do. <laughs> Genuinely want to. So I, I ended up becoming the arts and features editor and then found out that, I, that the editors were also responsible for laying out the paper. And the paper was twice a week. It was a really well-regarded newspaper, um, student newspaper. And so I learned how to do layout and paste up old school with waxers and ruby lith and typesetting equipment and stat cameras. I mean, I really, really have mad skills in that old school style layout and paste up. So that's how I got my, that's how I got all of my experience. And that brings us to your first job out of college. Was working at a magazine, a cable magazine. Cable View was the name. And cable in the 19, early 1980s, for those of you that may have been alive then, was really the next big thing. It was a really big deal. And so there were all sorts of magazines and different books and publications and all sorts of things about the sort of world of cable. HBO and Showtime and Cinemax were a big deal. And it was sort of the Netflix of our of our of the time. And so I was working as as an editor for this newspaper, this magazine. So I want to talk about an experience you had there, which you write about in your book of illustrated essays Ooh, called Self. Yes. So your book, uh, Self-Portrait as Your Traitor, yes. includes an essay called Penelope. <laughs> and um, also, I just want to mention that 
you were paid $6 an hour. That was a lot then. At this job, and that was a lot then. So perspective. So you loved the job. You stayed late in the office, and you would eavesdrop on the designers, imagining yourself as one of them. And then one day, Penelope was hired. And you describe her as tall and thin with a swingy brunette bob and the coolest hosiery I've ever seen. You wanted to be her, and suddenly nothing was enough. So you charged clothes and shoes you couldn't afford on a credit card, take a loan from your mom to pay the credit card bill when it came, and you decided that if you could just save $1,000, everything would be okay. I did. So you took a new job as a director of marketing for a real estate company, and you made you were making $25,000 a year, which was a raise from the $6 an hour. Yes. And you, I think it t- you said it took a year to save the $1,000. And then you decided, well, if I have $2,000, then everything will really be okay. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> right. So we know that you that you moved on eventually from those things and you've done many, many things in your life. But I want to talk about humble beginnings and that time when you were working in real estate. <laughs> <laughs> I was so depressed. I hated that job more than anything. And I had a boss who was so mean. And I, at that time in a person's career, if you didn't stay at a job for a year, it seemed as if something was wrong with you. And I hated the job the first day, the very first. I mean, I knew I was going to hate the job before I even took the job. But I really left that job, the first job, the one that I really loved, because of Penelope. Mm-hmm. Because Penelope was so much cooler than I was. And I just felt like I would never, ever be able to be somebody so fabulous. And and facing that every day was so demoralizing and so dispiriting that I felt that I had no choice but to just leave. And I got this other opportunity, which was going to pay me a significantly larger amount of money. And I thought that that would be beneficial and that I would that, that would make me feel better. And mm-hmm. in fact, it didn't. And $1,000 or $2,000 or whatever it is you think is going to give you that sense of security, if it is outside of yourself, I can let you know now that will never, ever work, ever, ever. No matter how much you have, you'll still feel unsafe and insecure. But that job was so bad, I tried to do all these sort of alternative ways. I tried to, I took all kinds of alternative classes and I worked I did a little bit of work at Integral Yoga and was trying to like really find myself. And so I found this group and I went, we were supposed to do these affirmations and the affirmation I had to say was something like, I love my job. I love my job. I love my job. And I would, I drove to work. I used to drive to work and every day I would, it would take me 45 minutes and the whole way there and the whole way back, I would say, I love my job. I love my job. And it didn't work. I hated my job. I hated every single second of that entire year. But all I could remember is saying a million times, I love my job. And it didn't work. But yeah, that's, that's how desperate I was. That's how desperate I was to try to love my job. And so we know you did leave that job because you're here and you love your job now. I begged them to fire me so that I could collect unemployment. That's what I did. I collected unemployment. I worked off the books at Integral Yoga and I did some freelancing for a nutritionist as her secretary. 
1985, that was my life. Two years after graduating college, I was collecting unemployment. <laughs> three years. Three years after graduating college, I was collecting unemployment, working as a secretary for a nutritionist, booking her appointments, and working off the books at Integral Yoga to help pay my food bill. I never heard this part of the story yeah, before. Yeah, that's, I don't talk about this very <laughs> You heard often. it here. Um, so I want to go back to this idea of, you know, we metabolize the things in our lives, whether it's money, prestige, relationships. When we get what we think we need or want, then we become bored with it and want more, or we become satisfied and want more. And I just read this book called Courage by Osho, and I wanted to quote an, an excerpt from that. It is not a question of money, power, and prestige. It is a question of what you intrinsically want to do. Do it irrespective of the results, and your boredom will disappear. You must be following others' ideas. You must be doing things in a right way. You must be doing things as they should be done. These are the foundation stones of boredom. So I want to ask, how have you navigated the tendency to metabolize your work experiences? And also, how have you navigated boredom? Because you metabolize, you get used to it, it's familiar, it's not a challenge anymore. Well, we, we live on a metabolizing planet. You know, every everything is metabolized. We metabolize our experiences, we metabolize food, we metabolize emotions. Um, if I put two glasses of water on that table, one that was full of ice and one that was boiling, we could leave a couple of hours for a couple of hours, come back, and, and the water would be the same temperature in both glasses. That's the metabolization of that entity. And human beings are the same way. We metabolize. We could eat a giant meal at Thanksgiving and think we never want to eat again. And four or five hours later, we're poking through the refrigerator. We can buy a pair of shoes and think that our outfit is really snazzy. And then six weeks later, they're scuffed and we don't get quite that same sense of allure from them. We do that with people. You know, we fall madly in love with someone and then we think that that's, that's all there is in the world in that time we're falling in love. And then, you know, eight, between 18 and 24 months later, we're saying, you know, stop breathing like that. And, <laughs> it, you know, we, metab we metabolize it all. And so if we're looking for somebody else to fill us up, if we're looking for shoes to make us feel better intrinsically, mm -hmm. or if we're looking for anything outside ourselves to fulfill whatever we're missing, whatever we think we're missing, it will only last for a short amount of time. And that's in many ways why we're so enamored with our, our devices, because we get a lot of immediate feedback from those devices, whether it be notifications on Instagram or email or any, anything that shows us that we are wanted or needed or appreciated or liked gives us that hit of dopamine. And the issue that we have now with our devices is dopamine is highly addictive, highly, highly addictive. And so the more we get it, the more we want it. And so we continue to chase that experience when in fact dopamine is very short-lived. It's, it's not something that is sustained in the body for very long. And so we end up just craving it, craving it, craving it, craving it until we get it again. And then it lasts for just sort of a couple of seconds. And then we go through that again. And, you know, Dan Pink said it really well. If our idea of happiness is a big flat screen TV, mm -hmm. we're playing a fool's game. But you can substitute the word flat screen TV for almost anything if it's our idea for happiness outside of ourselves. I was reading Seth Godin's blog a couple of months ago, and he was talking about the difference between, between 
pleasure and, and real happiness. And pleasure is something we continue to seek. We want it more, more, more. So, you know, the dopamine hit, the dopamine hit, the dopamine hit. But real happiness is when we're content and don't want anything else. Don't want more. We're content with how things are, with what we have. And there's a, it's a really interesting big difference because with pleasure, we're seeking outside. Mm -hmm. And with contentment, we're feeling it internally. Mm -hmm. And I love that. That's good. So Seth Godin, not Debbie Millman. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to put that on Twitter. So let's, I know there were years between the real estate and then getting into branding, but can you quickly take us, like, how did you get from that moment of driving to work going, I, I love my job, I love my job, but I hate my job, to now I'm working at Sterling Brands and... So that was, it's a, it's a, it's a great question because there I am in 1985, 1986, you know, pretending to convince myself that I like something that I loathe and it, I didn't arrive at Sterling until 1995. Right. So, so 10 it was, years. It was what I call the decade of humiliation and rejection. And it was, again, trying to find a place in the world where I belonged, not having any sense that I belonged anywhere, mm -hmm. which really harkens back to even wanting the Barrettes to feel better, appreciated, approved of, the Levi's, the Lacoste, all of those things were just things that I believed would provide me with what I didn't have. And so that from 1985 to 1995, I mean, there were some moments, some really good moments. One of the best moments was in the early 90s. I had an opportunity. I was free, still freelancing, doing a lot of freelance design work, and had an opportunity to work on the creation of Hot 97, the, first, the world's first hip-hop radio station. Hot 97, when I started working with them, was a dance music radio station, and they were interested in creating a hip-hop radio station, thinking at the time in the early 90s that the, the moment might be right, and no one thought that it could be successful. Every, so Judy Ellis was the then general manager at MS Broadcasting, which owned Hot 97, and this was really her idea. She wanted to do this, and just say so it was a bunch of white Jewish girls doing this, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, so she really wanted to do this, but no one believed in her. No one thought that there would be a market for a hip-hop radio station, that no one would listen to a hip-hop radio station. She single-handedly made that happen. It was an amazing, amazing thing to watch. Um, also, there was another, actually, a wonderful man involved, too, Rocco Macri. He was the promotion manager. But, but really, it was Judy's vision. And so I was part of that team. But really, I was on the sort of sidelines, just mm -hmm. helping. It was really her vision. That was a really wonderful experience. But most of the time, I was just going from thing to thing, trying to find a place in the world that I would fit in. And because I didn't know that branding would be it, mm -hmm. I didn't actively seek it out. I didn't know that I was going to be good at branding, one, because I didn't know what branding was. Two, I didn't know that it was something that people would were working at in companies. And three, you know, for me, I thought printers made packaging. I didn't know that even designers did that because that's how far away from that discipline I was. And it was only after a whole series of failures at different design firms and in different capacities working on my own and as a freelancer that I went from working as a designer to working at sort of one of my dream companies, but not as a designer, as an account executive because they didn't think my design was good enough but I was so desperate to work there that I took the job that they offered me, thinking that I would learn. And he hated me, that the boss, that the guy that hired me hated me. And I, and I often tell this to people, if you think that the person that's hiring you doesn't like you, it will never get better. 
Like they will never suddenly wake up and think, now you really are the person I've been looking for my whole life. <laughs> it was really awful. I lasted about a year and I got, I got cold called by a headhunter who had a sales job in a branding consultancy. And I was so desperate to leave this other job that I took the job working in sales at a branding consultancy, which was then called the Schechter Group, but while I was there, was merged with Interbrand. And so I became an employee of Interbrand in my first couple of years there. But seriously, I went from being a designer, which I thought was sort of this exalted position in the world, to then becoming an account executive, which is an exalted position for someone that wants to be an account executive, but not for somebody that wants to be a designer. But that was all I could do. And then from there, went to a position as a salesperson, which didn't feel like an exalted position for anyone in the world. And that was what I was good at. And so I entered this environment where it is my job to go talk to people in large corporations about the value of their brands or the value that the company I was working at could bring to their brands. I didn't know what value they could provide. The only value I understood was what I thought of the brands and what I thought could be changed. But because I'd had this intrinsic sort of almost osmosis-like experience for my entire life in my dad's pharmacy, from the time I was four years old looking at the spinning barrettes to being in college and helping him as a cashier in his pharmacy, I knew why people bought things. I had been serving people in his pharmacy for my whole life. And so it was almost as if I had learned it I had this on-the-job training that I didn't even know I was being trained for. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, 12 years after I graduated, I realized I was good at something. So that's what I did at Interbrand. And then when Interbrand was imploding because of this merger, I called another headhunter and said, what do you have for me? She referred me to Simon Williams, the then founder of Sterling Brands, which was then called Sterling Group, which had been acquired by Simon from Michael Peters when the Michael Peters group had gone bankrupt. So Simon bought Sterling Brands, which was a handful of people with one client, for a dollar. This is what they were setting me up for, this headhunter. <laughs> but I really liked Simon. I thought I could have impact there. It felt to me like they really could use my services. They seemed like they didn't know what they were doing. And I felt like I could make a difference. And so 1995, 12 years after I graduated college, I went and joined this just recently out of bankrupt firm, and it changed my life. It, I changed their lives, they changed my lives. Suddenly, I, so I was partners with Simon for 22 years. It was the most remarkable partnership. He was really all about building the infrastructure of the business. Ultimately, his, his ultimate goal was to sell the company to a large holding company, and I got to build a company from scratch, from nothing. And I started in doing design business development. And then what ended up happening was I ended up getting about seven projects in a row, we, we, which were we all were one after another fired from. And really big projects like Tylenol and Yo Play and Hungry Jack and like really big brands. And I was watching like all of my contacts and all of my re relationships sort of disintegrate. And Simon saw it too. And at that point, I think two years after I got there, he appointed me president. Mm -hmm. And then I really was able to build this company just really out of what I would consider to be the sheer force of our collective will. We wanted to do something really, really interesting, really meaningful. 
few years after that, we got the Burger King business. We designed the Burger King logo. Then we designed the Hershey bar. And the company took off. And ultimately, in 2008, we were able to sell the company to Omnicom. And then I stayed another eight years mm -hmm. after that, mostly because I was terrified that I was nothing without this job. You know, I yeah. had this position of power, and I was making good money, and I had a place in, a, in the industry and a voice that people respected because I had this, mm -hmm. this thing that I was a part of. And I was really terrified that if I didn't have that, that I, I wouldn't have anything. Mm -hmm. So I had always said to people that we had an, a five-year contract we had to fulfill before we could leave. And I said, as soon as that's over, I'm going to go. I'm going to start my own thing. I'm going to do my own thing. And then 2013 came. And then I was like, renovating my apartment. And you know, it would be nice to have the extra money. And then 2014 came. And then 2015 came. And then 2016 came. And then my brother, then I was offered the CEO position. You know, Just like Al Pacino says in Godfather 3, just when I was really about to leave, they're like, pull me back in. <laughs> And it was the hardest decision of my life because I was, I was president, but I was the number two person in the firm. Simon Williams was the founder and the chief executive officer. And then he wanted to retire. And he offered me the job. And here I am, like, thinking, okay, next year is the year. The house is finished. I'm ready to do this. And then he offers me the job of CEO. And I'm like, there are very few women CEOs within Omnicom. Be a really kind of an amazing thing to have on my resume. I could do it for two years and then go. And I'm talking to my brother, who's you know knows me really well, and he's like, you're never leaving, ever leaving. And then I said, you're right, but you're wrong. And I didn't take the job. And then I developed my exit strategy, which was really an exit strategy. And I departed in October, October 31st, 2016, not that I'm counting. Um, October 31st, 2016, I became a free agent. And it was the best and most liberating decision of my life. I now say decisions are only hard when you're in the process of making them. After that, it's like, what was I waiting for? So if that gives you, if anybody's on the precipice of taking that step, yeah. making that decision, it's only difficult until you actually make it. Then when you make the decision, it's like, whoosh. That's good advice. I like to look at decisions as gathering more information. So you make a decision, you gather <laughs> it took, information. It took eight years for me to gather all <laughs> the information I needed. And then you can make another decision. Um, so branding was really, an, it was inherent, it was in you, but doing branding for a career wasn't an accident. A well, bit. I mean, I became, I was um, good at this thing. Mm -hmm. There is something really intoxicating about being good at something. Mm -hmm. And so for that 10 years, that first 10 years from 1995 to 2005, I literally stopped everything else in my life. I stopped drawing, I stopped painting, I stopped writing, I stopped everything. And I just put my nose down to the grindstone and I loved it because I was good at it and it was, I was getting all that sort of positive affirmations from it. And then by 2004, 2003, 2004, I started to feel like, wow, everything I'm doing is entirely commercial. There's, there's a lot of creativity, but there's nothing like soulful yeah. about it. And I started to feel like I was dying a little bit inside. Mm -hmm. And then I got another cold call in 2004, out of the blue. Big lesson here, take the cold calls. Mm -hmm. I got a cold call from this fledgling internet radio <laughs> network in Arizona called Voice America Business Network. They were interested in my hosting an online radio show for mm -hmm. them. Now I thought they were offering me a job what they were really offering me was an opportunity to pay them for airtime. 
So I had to pay them, but they would then produce a show. And I thought, this could be fun. You know, I had all but given up everything else creative I was doing. They wanted me to do the show on branding. I didn't want to do it on branding. I wanted to do it on design. And I convinced them, ultimately. But now looking back on it, I'm like, really? I had to convince you to give you my money. But I did the show for four years on Voice America Business Network, and they produced it. And my producers were in Arizona, so we were all connected initially by handheld phone lines. So literally in 2005, when I started my show, and on Monday, no, on Sunday was my 13th anniversary, February 4th, 2005, I started Design Matters. And I was literally sitting across from someone, imagine my desk here at the Empire State Building, and you and I would both be holding handsets. And that's how we did the show. So if anybody's ever been on the phone in their home where there might still be a landline with your parents and your grandparents got on the phone and everybody wanted to talk to grandma all at the same time, that echo you'd hear, all my early shows were like that. You didn't, the listener didn't hear the echo, but the two, the guest and the host both heard the echo because we were talking and listening at the same time. And then in 2009, uh, Bill Durantel, the late, great Bill Durantel of designobserver.com, one of the founders, he asked me if I'd be interested in bringing the show to Design Observer, but with the proviso that I improve the sound quality. <laughs> and so I, he then introduced me to Curtis Fox, who's my producer, who became my producer in 2009 and has been my producer now for going on 300 episodes that we've done now outside of Voice America or what I often referred to as Wayne's World because that's what it was like working with Wayne and Garth as if they were doing the radio show and, and, and producing it for me. And it was wonderful, and I don't, I, you know, it was perfect for what it was. I'm still very embarrassed about those early shows because they are really unlistenable, but I do keep them up there and out there in a separate archive from Design Matters Current, mostly because I, I think it's important for people to realize that getting good at anything takes time. Mm -hmm. And it took me... It really took me 10 years before I think I really understood what I was trying to do. I wasn't really interested in designers talking about design, even though it was called Design Matters. What I was really, really interested in and I'm endlessly fascinated by and think I'll be endlessly fascinated till, till the end of my life is how does a person become a person? How does somebody make the choices to become, to have a creative life? What is the arc of a creative life? And that's really what I was interested in understanding with any of my guests. So they could be artists or designers or musicians or performers. They could be anybody that's living a creative life. I want to know how a person makes that happen. Mine was completely, completely circuitous, completely serendipitous. It, it almost had no form to it at all. People ask me, how did I get here? I'm like, I have no fucking clue. <laughs> but... It happened over, over decades. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's what I'm really interested in. But that took a really long time. And if I hadn't done it for all that time, I don't know that I would have discovered that. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Design Matters. So you, as you mentioned, um, your show, Design Matters, is in its 13th year. Yeah, we're actually beginning the 14th. Beginning the 14th. Completed yeah. the 13th. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's, a new, it's 2018, guys. And you've interviewed over 400 people? Just about. Just, just about. about. I, I think we're nearing the 400th episode. Um, I mean, everyone from Milton Glaser, Malcolm Gladwell, Shepard Ferry, Barbara Kruger, Amanda Palmer, Elaine de Baton, many, many, many people. So I, I'm wondering, throughout all of those conversations, are there any insights you've had about the human spirit? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, the first thing I can tell you is that of those 400 interviews, the only two people that were really self-satisfied 
were Milton Glaser mm -hmm. and Massimo Vignelli. And the common denominator that they share was that when I interviewed them, they were both in their 80s. So I think that is one of the great gifts of age, is that by the time you get to that point in your life, it's sort of, I am who I am. If you don't like it, interview someone else. And, and everyone else. There's not a person I have ever interviewed, aside from the two of them, that aren't thinking about their own sense of agency, that aren't insecure, that aren't worried about who they are or who they'll be or how they'll be. And I think that's just part of what it means to not only be an artist or a creator or a maker, but maybe just a sort of conscious human being. Mm -hmm. how, how can I make a life that has meaning? And knowing that everyone has these questions some people struggle more than others. Some people are luckier more than others. But it all seems to sort of equalize as you continue to work and try and grow and develop. Knowing that somehow makes it feel a bit easier to handle failure and rejection and struggle because it just seems to really be part of the process. Yeah, that's good. And I want to go back to, you know, we've been talking about your path and it's a long path. <laughs> There's still details we haven't touched on tonight, but you you are very um, forthcoming about the fact that it took a long time. And, you know, I think we're so, we want everything immediately. Mm. We're so impatient. And, you know, we see people on Instagram who are in their early 20s having all of this success. And I worry about them. It's yeah. really hard to sustain that. Yeah. It so, really so is what, hard to sustain that big, giant, powwow out of the gate. You know, you come out with all that power and people are noticing you and witnessing everything you're doing and then you have to maintain that. And that's really hard. It's really hard to maintain original thinking and it's really hard to maintain original anything for decades. So, I mean, this is what Dan Gilbert would call classic synthesized happiness, but I'm okay with the fact that it took a long time because it then means that I can hopefully, because it's been a slow build as opposed to a just zoom to the top, that hopefully it's something that I, I, first of all, I've grown to appreciate in a way that I don't know that I ever would have if it had been easier. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like. First of all, I think I would have self-destructed because when I was in my 20s, I was insane. I was crazy. I had just started therapy. I'd come from a really, really abusive, violent childhood. I had no idea how anything worked. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know any of my own value or any of my own anything. So had anything big happened to me at that point in my life, I would have been, I would have self-destructed. I wouldn't have known how to handle it. I would have used it as the reason for me being happy. As soon as it might have dissipated, I would have been dramatically, mm -hmm. probably debilitatingly depressed. So, so yeah, there's Dan Gilbert in action, synthesized mm -hmm. happiness. But I do feel that if you are able to build something and, and grow that over the years, it becomes more perennial and less annual. And for those that are out of the gate really fast and furious and super successful, I, I am in awe. Mm -hmm. I'm in awe of having that much ability and and confidence and understanding of one's own power to be able to even consider putting something out there in the world like that. So embrace I'm not anonymity sure if I early your on. No, you did. I've lost you did. The whole thread of the conversation. You did. I'm sorry. Um, no, I think yeah. When things take longer, 
you maybe appreciate it more easier yeah, to I mean, sustain this incredible for you. gratitude yeah. incredible gratitude like even you guys coming out tonight with the weather and i mean it's amazing to me so thank you but i also think that it gives you an opportunity to really be able to understand what is important to you. What are you willing to sacrifice to be able to either maintain what you're doing or to increase what you're doing or improve what you're doing? One of the things that I've learned over time, and I, I, I say this almost as a cautionary tale, but also one that is fundamentally true to who I am. When I graduated in 1983, I remember being in a position where I actually felt like I was compromising that I was giving up my dreams to be able to do something that would keep me financially secure, safe, all the things that I wanted at that time, in addition to living a creative life. And I told myself that for decades, I compromised. You know, I, I went into design because I didn't think I could make it as an artist or a writer, and I was making $6 an hour, which was a lot of money back then. But what I came to realize was there was only one thing that I really, really was willing to sacrifice for. And it might sound silly, but it was living in Manhattan, mm -hmm. which has become <laughs> something that I've, I've, I've done now for the entire time since I graduated college and will likely never leave. I wanted to live in Manhattan more than anything else. And so I needed that salary to pay my rent. I lived in a fourth floor tenement walk-up. I lived in a railroad flat that was probably, could have been, looked at by the Department of Health and, and declared, a, you know, a, whatever those things are called. I don't even know. But it was really, really in bad shape. There was a family of pigeons living on the, um, ter on the, on the terrace, on the fire escape, on the fire escape. And they, had, they were living in, the pre some previous tenant had left, you know, those lawn chairs you can sometimes have on the beach. They're, yeah. they're made out of plastic strips. Yeah. Yeah. So they were all folded up on the fire escape, and there were probably four of them. And there were pigeons living in and around them all over. It was a complete and total fire hazard. There was no, there was no air conditioning in the apartment. It was a fourth floor tenement walk-up, which meant that I couldn't open the window <laughs> in the summer because of the pigeons. <laughs> so that, but that was okay, because I was living in Manhattan. I was walking through somebody else's bedroom. It was a couple to get through to mine because I lived in the far front room. And, you know, they were a couple that do coupley things. So there would be times I got stuck on either side. I couldn't leave or I couldn't go to my room because I didn't want to interrupt them. There were also no doors. <laughs> so there were literally, we put curtains up between the rooms. It really was quite an interesting way to live. And I lived there for five years. Wow. But, you know, if I wanted to be an artist or a writer more than that, mm -hmm. I could have lived with my mother in Fresh Meadows, Queens. Mm -hmm. She had an extra bedroom, but that was not something that I even remotely considered, not even remotely. And so it was only a few, many decades, a few decades later, probably not even 10 years ago, I'm in my mid-50s, that I realized I didn't compromise. That was my non-negotiable. That was my non-negotiable. My non-negotiable was living in Manhattan. And I did whatever it took, in whatever conditions, whatever circumstances, to be there. And so if you're still searching for what it is you want, think about what your non-negotiable is. That was my non-negotiable. And it has been the one consistent thing that I can say has never changed in the 35 years since I graduated college. Mm -hmm. So no, I didn't compromise. I just lied to myself, telling myself that that's what I really wanted when in fact it was what I wanted, but not enough 
to sacrifice everything else for. So know what you want and know what you're willing to sacrifice. Yeah. That's good. So I think we're going to open it up to the audience for questions. There's a woman right here. Yeah, go ahead. I was wondering how you think of the end of your Penelope story and how you think what you would tell yourself then about what you were thinking about Penelope. So the end of my Penelope story is I'm really unhappy in my job and I I leave this cable, it's a completely um, autobiographical story. So, and her name really is Penelope, by the way. <laughs> um, it really is. Um, I found her on Facebook. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything else because this is being taped. Um, so I, the end of the job, the end of this story is I'm, I'm still in, I leave the cable job where Penelope is. I start working at this real estate company where I'm miserable and trying to tell myself that I am happy every day. But I also want nice things like Penelope. And every time I think about leaving my job, I, I think about the cute little boots that I saw for sale on 8th Street or whatever, and I keep driving. And it's really just a matter of, in that moment in my life, feeling that having that security and that financial uh, stability was, was more important than anything. And I wanted, I, I sort of was struggling between wanting the things that other people had that I thought would make me happy, with thought would, that I thought would make me um, more attractive to others, and then also struggling with what I needed to feel fulfilled as an artist or a, a maker of things. But for many, many years, that sort of need to feel accepted, appreciated, approved of won out many, many times. More, more than I care to admit, but yeah. Georgia. This is Georgia Lupi, by the way. Georgia Lupi's in the audience. Great artist and designer. Thank you so much for this inspiring conversation. I was, um, well, I've been following your podcast for forever. And it's so interesting that you said that uh, you ultimately, after 13 years or maybe like two years ago or something, you realized that it was much more about how creative people design their life in a way than um, the role of design itself. But, but maybe you had the intuition from the beginning. And I was wondering if you could share with us what were the moments around the yeah, along the process when you had this realization and if it was like a specific moment with specific guests or if it was a process. And uh, I think that besides my real interest in like knowing that, it's also interesting because maybe you had the intuition from the beginning that this design matter series was really meaningful for you for uh, your uh, desire to fulfill this. Um, and uh, but, but then you were able to elaborate it and to distill it clearly maybe only lately. And uh, because I think that the way that you conducted the interviews have always been um, focused on the person, but maybe lately it's more clear because the people you are interviewing are less designers than before, if it makes any sense. Yeah, I don't think that there was any, any sense of where it could go, mostly because it was expensive to do the show on, on Voice America. For me, it was very expensive. And I, so I wasn't looking that far into the future because I was still, you know, extremely frugal and worried about money and so forth. And so thinking that far into the future would have also meant the sort of price it would be to do that many shows. So I wasn't really thinking about the, about the future. And in fact, when I moved the show to Design Observer in 2009, 
I was still doing that. That was really the big, the big change. I, even the first couple of shows that I did when I moved, I was still including the monologues that I used to do in the first hundred episodes. So for, for anybody that, that could stand to go back into the archive and listen to these horrendous shows, the first, the first five or 10 minutes of, of each episode, I read a monologue that I had written about current events, about, you know, Penelope was, was an original monologue. And so I did that for the first 100 episodes, really first 102. And when I moved into the more sort of structured, produced interview that wasn't live, I decided to take the monologues away. And the monologues were really polarizing. Some people thought they were amazing and wonderful and they loved them. And I ended up doing two books of illustrated essays, all of which were monologues on the show. But then other people thought they were really narcissistic and nobody cared about what I thought about whatever it was that I was writing about. And that was very painful as well. As, you know, the, always, the negative things always hurt more than the positive things felt good. So when I started, I did the two episodes and then I decided... I don't want to do the monologues anymore. It takes away, it takes way too much time. And I want to spend that time doing my own research. I also, at, at, up until that point, had somebody helping me with research. One of the women in my office at Sterling. Then I stopped the monologues, started doing my own research. And that's when I think the show really changed. Because suddenly, I wasn't just taking the information that was given to me and crafting questions. I was actually looking for who that person was and my curiosity was then piqued about their origins and their struggles. And I chose then at that point what questions to craft from the information I had found. And the more I've become good at researching, and I've become, I think, pretty good, um, the more I think I've been able to offer something unique in that I'm not asking questions, or I try not to ask questions that most people are asking. If I do ask a question about something that's already out there, what I'm much more interested in understanding is why they answered the question that way. And that's where I'll pick up that information that might already be out there, but then delve deeper. And so I really want to get at the soul of a person. It's not even about what it is they do. It's about why they do it and how they do it and how they overcame whatever they've overcome to be able to do it. Because everybody has, you know, that's sort of the thing I've learned is that everyone is confronted by the enormity of their life. And how do they manage through it to make something that has meaning? And that's what I'm interested in understanding. In spite of the fact that you said that you had low expectations of the things you worked on and you were confronted by the, as you say, the enormity of life in general, what got you up in the morning to even do these things? What, what supplied you with the audaciousness to go ahead and do these things in spite of all of that? I did an interview with, um, not an interview, just a conversation with Danny Shapiro recently. And she asked me that question. And I think I found the answer. I don't know that it's going to satisfy you. Fire away. Longing. I have always had tremendous longing to do something meaningful. And that's what keeps me continuing to do it, even in the face of failure or rejection is this deep longing to do something worthwhile. Any idea where that came from, this deep longing? Did something trigger it? Was it just intrinsic from when you were five years old? I mean, it, might, it, might, it might be because I felt so invaluable as I was growing up that I, I wanted to feel valuable. I wanted to feel 
like I could be somebody, be something, you know? I don't know really where the longing comes from, but when I said that, Danny was like, yeah, I, that's, I feel that too. I feel that longing. I, I desperately long for something, and that longing is bigger than my fear. The longing is bigger than my fear of rejection or my fear of failure. That desperation, <laughs> maybe it's really desperation, not longing, but that intense feeling is bigger than any of the other things that might stand in the way of getting it. Thank you for your candor. I religiously uh, listened to your, your podcast and I actually came from really far just to... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I came from Savannah, Georgia. I was supposed to be in town for a really short amount of time. I'm actually heading out on a flight 7 a.m. tomorrow. Thank and you. And I made sure to come. So um, I wanted to ask, um, out of Anything all of the... Anything you can ask Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> out, of, out of all of the people you've interviewed, uh, who was the most inspiring to you? And was there a particular virtue that piqued your interest or that, that you were particularly drawn to? So it's a good question. There, I have a couple of different ways of, of answering that. And some of the, ans the one of the per people I'm going to mention hasn't aired yet, and that'll be coming soon. But one of the, my, one of the most profound conversations I think I had, or maybe one of the first profound conversations, was with Chris Ware when he came out with Building Stories. I think he was surprised that I had immersed myself so deeply in the work, which was a whole box of ephemera, book, a game, brochures, and I became just obsessed in, 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 this, in this book of his. It was just the most extraordinary thing. And I think that he was moved by that and was, for somebody that doesn't like to be interviewed and has given very, very few interviews, I think he opened up in a way that neither one of us expected. And so I think we, we deeply connected. He, he understood how much I appreciated the work, and so therefore he did want to talk about it. So that was, that was certainly one of them. I think my conversation with Alain de Botton, because we talk so deeply about love, and it's something I don't understand. So he was, and he was so willing to answer any question I had about it. I think that was one of the most inspiring. And then I just interviewed Steven Pinker. Uh, Steven Pinker has a book out coming out called Enlightenment Now. And the show, so the season is starting on Monday. My new season is starting on Monday. And so his show will be, the book is released the, the last week in February. So that's when we'll release the show. And he's a cognitive psychologist, a linguist, a writer, and really an artistic soul. And it was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had with anybody. I also just interviewed Lewis Lapham, and that was inspiring mostly because I was completely humbled. I was so out of my league. The man is so smart. He really wanted to talk about history. And I'm like, really? Madison and Hamilton? And like, I'd seen the play, but I couldn't, you know, I knew. <laughs> Thank you. I love when people laugh at my jokes. Um, so I was so over my head that I'm a little bit worried about, you'll, t you'll have to tell me, you know, because that one was inspiring because I was, sort of in awe of his intellect. It was unbelievable, quoting, talking about history in a way that, I've, that he brought it to life. But I was just like, wow. You know, I had, a, I had, a, I had to say to my, my producer, Curtis, I'm like, take the wow out. Edit the wow out. Nobody wants to hear me say wow on the podcast. But that's how enthralled I was by his intellect. So that's a couple, two of which are forthcoming. And we have the last question. 
Um, as a young person, your stories are super inspiring, also kind of comforting. Similar to his question, what interview do you think was the toughest to give? Because I'm sure not everyone's going to open Has up. Has anybody like heard my Richard Solwerman interview? Yes, I just listened to that. That's why I asked. And I was like, come on, like, what are you doing? I have to say, I've, doing, I've done this show now, almost 400 episodes. I get a lot of feedback. I get a lot of emails from people. I get a lot of artwork. I get a lot of handwritten mail. I've gotten more response from this interview than every other podcast combined. I get there. text messages. There. I get messages through Instagram, through Twitter, through Facebook, emails, ha again, handwritten letters asking me, how did, I, how did I do it? How did I feel? What was I experiencing? It was the hardest interview I've ever done. It was, it was something that I didn't know I could, if I could finish. I didn't know if I could finish. I was not expected. I was not expecting how he was speaking to me. And I knew that he was difficult. I was warned that he was incredibly challenging, ridiculously smart, took no prisoners, suffered, did not suffer fools. But I had done what I thought was, I like, I have my research. I am, I am invincible because I know everything about him. That was part of the problem. And to be perfectly honest, there was a moment where I wanted to say, please don't speak to me like that but not as nicely as I just did. I had just started my semester with my students at SVA. Now, I have been told over the years by my students that when they first meet me, they can sometimes be intimidated. And I do everything I can to try to overcome that. And here it was, the second or third week of school. They had only seen one interview prior, and I didn't want to scare them <laughs> by doing anything that I would then regret I didn't want them to feel like I could fly off the handle. I didn't want them to see me so angry so early on in the semester. And so I just sat there and plowed through it. But it was really because I didn't want to embarrass my students. <laughs> because I really, really, really almost snapped several times. And, and it was really difficult. You but, handled it well. <laughs> thank you. I got an email from Richard recently that said he didn't remember it being as good as it was. He thought it was really bad when we were doing it. <laughs> But ultimately listened to it and thought I did a good Highest job and yeah. hoped, hoped that my students appreciated my skill. Wow. So I was like, cool. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> well, I think that wraps everything up. So thank you so much for both joining us tonight. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming out. And that does it for this episode of Scrib Chat. Don't forget, you can read several of Debbie Millman's books on Scribd for free with your subscription. If you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting Scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.